0: Hello, it's Biter Worldwide for the week of October 14th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And a happy Thursday evening. Normally I record the program on a Saturday, but I thought I'd mention that it's being recorded this week on a Thursday. There's a reason for that. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but there is a reason. And this week we have answers and questions. Maybe we have questions and answers. Probably I'd ask the question first. That way you can tell if the answer goes along with the question. Yes, people do send questions to TechBiter Worldwide. Sometimes they get answers. For example, here's one. A listener who had installed a rather complicated backup program several months ago discovered that the rather complicated backup application hadn't been working and that he actually had no backups. Fortunately, he discovered that before he needed a backup. And what he asked was, what I'd like to do is reformat the drive, partition it, and then get a program that I can understand, and redo everything, including one partition for each of my three machines. Well, first part's pretty easy. Format. That's what the operating system is for. Assuming all machines are Windows XP or above, then format the external drive as an NTFS drive. If you're dealing with machines that aren't NT or Windows 2000 or Windows XP, then maybe you need a FAT32 format, but probably you're going to want NTFS. One partition, one volume, don't bother with multiple partitions on a drive that will move from one machine to another. Just keep it simple. As for backup, I would recommend a Cronus True Image Home Version 11. It's about $50. I'll have a review of this application, that's a new version, in an upcoming report, probably three or four weeks from now. It is the fastest, easiest, most comprehensive backup application on the market, particularly for home users. Create a single backup for each machine on the portable hard drive. You can name those backups something like Machine 1, Machine 2, Machine 3, or maybe something a little more creative than that. And then make sure you keep the differential backups on the same drive. That, by the way, is important. And we'll talk about differential backups and incremental backups and backup backups in a future show. But if you're looking for a backup program, really, Acronis, True Image, Home, version 11, it's only about $50. Pretty good investment. Cleanliness is next to impossible, particularly when computers are involved. Here's the question. Somewhere, there must be things written that will make outlines of what to do to keep your computer healthy. Things like registered cleanup, unnecessary programs and icons, and duplicate files and pictures come to mind. All well and good, but is there a fairly simple way to keep things neat? I suspect more time is spent by us amateur computer users making our computers work than we do work on our computers. Well, yeah, system maintenance does seem to take a lot of time, and it's something we didn't have to do when we were doing everything on paper. Although if we wanted to be able to find things, it was important to develop a filing system and that was certainly a, an unproductive use of time, too. Well, if you don't install and remove applications frequently, then you really don't need to bother with things like registry cleanup. The registry is going to largely take care of itself unless you're adding and removing programs on a regular basis. And the occasional duplicate image, eh, so what? No big deal. With disk drives being the size they are these days, a few hundred duplicate images is no big deal what is a good idea though is defragmenting the drive from time to time my choice to do that even under vista which comes with its own subset of disk keeper software is the full version of disk keeper a lot of people have their own domains these days i have blind.com techbiter.com and a couple of others And when they send messages, they'd like those messages to come from their own domain, not from Cox.net or Huawei.com or some RR.com. Often, it's sufficient just to use the Internet Service Provider's Simple Mail Transport Protocol, the SMTP server, and change the from and reply to fields. But sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes it's not desirable. My machines are set up so that I can send mail through my Internet Service Provider, which is Wide Open West, or I can send mail directly through one of my own domains. Which one I choose depends on which one is working. In most cases, most days, both of them are working. And in that case, mail goes through one of my domains. Other people do that the other way around. They use their Internet Service Providers' SMTP server most of the time. The question is, I've been sending email through my Internet Service Providers' SMTP server, but they've been having problem with outbound mail for several days. I've been able to send messages through Gmail, but that doesn't look very professional. I tried setting up my email program to send messages via my own domain, but I can't connect to the server. My ISP says that they block port 25 and that I might as well give up. Well, okay, indeed, they probably do block port 25 traffic. A lot of Internet service providers are blocking pass-through port 25 traffic these days in kind of a misguided effort to stop spam. But as for them to tell you to give up, not exactly. By way of background, port 25 is one of the two ports commonly used by a lot of email programs. Port 25 is used for the SMTP connection, and port 110 is used for the POP3 connection. In more or less plain English, port 25 is used to send mail, and port 110 is used to receive mail. Now, although it's not necessary for the solution, it might be helpful for me at this point to talk about what the heck a port is, because a lot of people really get confused about what a port is. They tend to think of a port as being a physical device, maybe a physical device on a server somewhere, and that all of the mail goes through this one little physical connection, a little wire. Well, that isn't it. A port is, you can think of it as a connection place, not a physical place that exists in the real world. It exists only within the computer's memory. Ports 0 through 1024 are reserved for specific uses, but there are other ports. Ports 1025 through 65,535 may be defined by specific applications. Port 80 is used for HTTP requests. That's the web. And whenever your web browser tries to view a new page, it sends a request on port 80. And As I noted already, email applications typically use 25 for sending, 110 for receiving. So, if your ISP is blocking outbound port 25, you'll need to be able to connect to your Internet Services SMTP server via some other port. You may be able to connect, but you can't use port 25 to pass traffic through your own ISP to your domain host. What that means is you use another port. Which one? Well... It could be anything in the 0 through 1024 range, but often it's going to be in that 1025 to 65,535 range. Your domain host will be able to tell you which port to use. As for my own domain, it's hosted by an organization called Bluehost in Orem, Utah. And they provide two options, port 25 and through a little Linux magic, port 26. So in my case, should Wide Open West someday decide to block port 25, which at this point they don't, I could simply connect on port 26. In fact, being proactive, I already do connect on port 26. When you do that, you need to make some changes in the way your email program works. And if you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, I'll show you how to do that on Microsoft Mail, in Outlook, and in Outlook Express, and also in my own favorite email program, the Bat. Let's call this question the case of the unplugged laptop. If one uses a laptop primarily, and for extended periods, on AC power, and only occasionally uses battery power, should one remove the battery while the system is running on AC? My answer to that is no. If you don't believe me, okay, that's probably a good thing. So I checked for some additional information. I looked at Apple's website. You may not have an Apple computer, but a battery is, for the most part, a battery. And here's what Apple says. For proper maintenance of a lithium-based battery, it's important to keep the electrons in it moving occasionally. This disregards the fact that electrons are constantly moving. In motion, but that's okay. Apple does not recommend leaving your portable plugged in all the time. An ideal use would be a commuter who uses her MacBook Pro on the train. We have any trains in central Ohio? No. Then plugs it into the office to charge. This keeps the battery juices flowing. If, on the other hand, you use a desktop computer at work and save a notebook for infrequent travel, Apple recommends charging and discharging its battery at least once a month. So, there's the answer. Leave the battery in and run it from time to time on the battery. Continuing with laptops, I have been given an old laptop. It has Windows 98 SE on it and... That's an old laptop, but without the AC adapter. It carries no brand name, but the model L7300-L7200 makes it probable that it's sold by Siemens. Its battery says 10.8 volts, 4,500 milliamp hours, and its label says input plus 19 volts, 2.64 amps, 50 watts typical. Do you suppose it would be okay to hook it up with any old AC adapter that has the proper plug that's around 19 volts? The answer would be to define around 19 volts. If by around 19 volts, you mean maybe something in the range of, oh, 18 to 20 or 21 volts, okay, that'll probably be okay. It's important, though, to match the amperage. You'd need something capable of providing at least 2.64 amps. So 3 amps or 12 amps or 1,500 amps would be okay. 1,500 amps would be one big power supply, by the way. Two amps would not. And, of course, you need a plug with the right configuration and one with the right polarity. Do you ever notice that shut down and shut up aren't quite the same thing? You ever tell your computer to shut down and it doesn't? Sometimes computers just don't listen very well. Here's a question. Have you ever had an an issue with Windows XP Home that would cause you to have to click shut down twice? The questioner says, I go to the start menu, click shut down, and the box for Standby, Shutdown, or Hibernate come up. I click on Shutdown, and it does nothing. I have to do it again. This is when it closes. All I can think of is that there's a program in there holding up the system from closing. I don't get the typical, this program is not responding, or similar message. Well, you're probably right, but the question is, is the application that's getting in the way something you want to have running, or is it malware? If you're running Skype software, for example, try using the task manager to kill that process before shutting it down. That's not a long-term solution, but a way to troubleshoot what the problem actually is. That, by the way, was a problem with some versions of Skype's software. It's probably been fixed by now. You can use that same kind of procedure with other tasks to see if you can narrow it down to a specific application that's causing the problem. You do want to take care in killing processes, though. In some cases, killing a process will cause the machine to hang, and the only way to regain control is by physically powering it off. That's never a good way to close a machine down, so don't use that technique if you're at all concerned about what might happen. Some malware likes to edit the registry during the machine shutdown, and poorly written malware, and I have to wonder if that's an oxymoron, can cause that kind of behavior. And there are some protective programs, antivirus applications for example, that sometimes scan at shutdown and can cause that kind of behavior. So take a look at the disk drive indicator and see if the disk drive is being used. Maybe that's what's holding it up. Another test you can try related to some of the ones I've already talked about is after that first shutdown attempt, open the task manager to see if any applications are still running. If so, that's going to be the likely culprit, and killing an application doesn't have the same kind of dangers that killing a process does. This will be something you'll just have to kind of puzzle out on your own. In nerdly news this week, an IE7 free-for-all. If you have a less-than-legal copy of Windows... You haven't been able to upgrade to Microsoft's Internet Explorer version 7. That's because the IE download triggers a Microsoft Genuine Advantage interrogation. And if your machine fails that interrogation, the download doesn't happen. Well, it didn't happen in the past. Last week, all that changed. Microsoft has pulled the WGA requirement for Internet Explorer 7. When Microsoft initially put IE 7 under the WGA... The justification was that the free product was offered as a reward to those with legal versions of Windows. In dropping the requirement, Microsoft said what they've done is the best for users. So that kind of leaves open to question whether the WGA requirement was the best thing for users when they instituted that policy. You still can't download IE7 if you're running a pre-XP version of Windows. Version 7 is designed to work only with XP and Vista. So, why the change? Well, change might be spelled M-A-R-K-E-T-S-H-A-R-E, market share. Firefox, and to a significantly lesser degree, Opera, are eating into Microsoft's market share. And then, of course, there's the challenge from Apple with what is still a not-quite-ready-for-prime-time-on-Windows safari NetApplications, a company that tracks browser use, says that Firefox share is up by about two percentage points since this time last year, and that IE's share for IE6 and IE7 combined is down a bit. Microsoft doesn't like down a bit. So if you haven't yet downloaded Internet Explorer 7 and you want it, you can download it now or just wait till it shows up as a high-priority item in Windows Update. And if you find you don't like IE7, and some people definitely do not like IE7, you can downgrade back to IE6 relatively easily via the Add-Remove Programs applet in the control panel. I think I saw this one coming. Another suit naming Apple. Attorney Damien Fernandez has filed suit on behalf of Timothy Smith, who owns an iPhone, that having been unlocked so that it would work with a carrier other than AT&T, became essentially a brick when Apple updated it. The suit claims that Apple violated what's called the Cartwright Act because Apple prohibits iPhone consumers from using and purchasing a cell phone service other than that through AT&T. The suit contends that owners used legal means to unlock their iPhones, but they have lost the use of those devices because of Apple's unlawful and anti-competitive conduct, and that that conduct forces consumers to pay inflated prices for both the phone and the service. The suit doesn't seek any specific amount of damages. That's probably because that even though it's officially a class-action suit, there are as yet no other plaintiffs in that case, Class action suits, when won by the plaintiffs, usually give the winners a little bit of money or maybe a coupon with a minimal value and a lot of significant restrictions on its use, while the attorneys collect hundreds of thousands or, in some cases, millions of dollars in fees. You know, we might want to look into redefining the term winner when class action suits are involved suit asks for an injunction against Apple to prevent it from including software locks on its phone. The suit notes that the plaintiff believes that more than 1.125 million potential plaintiffs exist. This is a case that Apple probably can win in a court of law. It is not a case the company can win in the court of public opinion. The sooner Apple figures that out, the better it'll be for Apple. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 14th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.